Welcome to Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha with Behind the Schemes, and in this episode, we're talking with Dr. Ron Orenstein, author of the new book, Ivory, Horn, and Blood, Behind the Elephant and Rhinoceros Poaching Crisis. So what inspired you to write Ivory, Horn, and Blood? Well, this is an issue that's been central to what I've been doing for about the past 25 years. I first got involved in the international wildlife trade issue, the conservation problems of international wildlife trade in general, back after I had gotten my doctorate in zoology and, uh, and I'd gone on and gotten a law degree because there weren't a whole lot of jobs in zoology at that particular point, which was the, uh, the end of the 70s. And um, I, however, didn't want to just be a lawyer, per se. And in fact, I never really have been, I guess. But what I did was to set myself up with a professor of international law, uh, who later went on for quite a political career, actually, in Canada, and did a two-year directed research project with him on international treaties involving the conservation of wildlife. And the most interesting one for me of those was, was CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Uh, because CITES, unlike practically any other treaty of, of its type, actually has teeth. First of all, it's a trade treaty, which means that there are always two parties to the trade. So you're not just asking one country to do something nice. You're asking two countries to deal with each other in a certain way, and if one of them doesn't like what the other one is doing, they can bring some pressure to bear, whether through uh, CITES itself or through things like the Pelley Amendment in the United States. The other thing is that CITES issues are voted on, unlike, for argument's sake, things like the more recent Convention on Biological Diversity, where everything is done by consensus, so hmm. nothing really you know, worthwhile ever gets decided. Yeah. But, but so CITES which is far from perfect, but actually does have the capability of making a difference. If it didn't, I think people wouldn't be fighting it so hard. Uh, <laughs> it's a good point. But the thing is that I wanted to be more than just a scholar about it. I wanted to be involved. And so I actually ended up get, going pretty much on my own to the first public meeting that was ever held on CITES issues in Canada, which was in 1985. And Actually, excuse me, 83. But anyway, I was noticed by some people who were starting up an organization called the International Wildlife Coalition. And they invited me to sort of come on board and be their CITES person. And my very first CITES meeting I ever attended, which was the 1987 meeting, they were already talking about ivory as one of the big, big issues. And uh, 1989 which was the first meeting I attended that was out of Canada, it was in Switzerland, it was overseas, it was the whole two-week deal. That was the meeting where the international ban on the ivory trade was finally adopted. And I found myself more and more involved in that issue. I'd been working before that to try and stop ivory trade in Canada, which proved to be actually not terribly difficult. In fact, there was one store, uh, Thomas Burks & Sons, a big jewelry chain in Canada, they still exist, that was uh, advertising a promotion for ivory jewelry. 
And I wrote them a letter and sent them a whole bunch of newspaper clippings about the poaching crisis, what was going on in Africa, expecting them to, you know, put their back up and I'd have to work on them. They sent me back a letter saying, we had no idea this was going on. We're horrified. We're writing off and throwing out every piece of ivory in our chain across Canada. They threw away $80,000 worth of ivory. And, and this was in the 80s. And they actually, the vice president actually went on television with me to say, you know, why the store had done this and urging other people to do the same thing. So the, the thing about the ivory trade is that the message that ivory was causing terrible problems was already out there in much of the market by the time we actually got to the meeting in 89. The big problem was dealing with Southern Africans who were very, very intransigent about wanting to keep up with their own legal trade. That was where any legal trade in Africa was coming from with the Southern African countries. And I actually uh, ended up behind the scenes with uh, a couple of other people, Mark Stanley Price of the African Wildlife Foundation and uh, Dr. Ruth Mace. And we worked out a, a compromise plan whereby any country that had had its elephants transferred to Appendix 1 had a special set of criteria to have them taken off again if they with they wanted to do so with a panel of experts that would go and look over their situation. So it wouldn't be just a matter of the standard up and down vote. They would actually have people going, having a chance to see what they'd done. And this actually was adopted. This, what we dreamed up, became the, the deal maker. So I've always felt very personally involved with the fact that the ivory ban happened at all in 1989. And ever since then, I've been following that issue. I've been at every uh, CITES meeting of the conference of the parties since then, many of the committee meetings, and uh, watched the ivory and also the rhino debate, although there hasn't been as much of a rhino debate in CITES, but the ivory debate develop and develop. And of course, it was a huge success. This is the thing that is so frustrating about what's going on today, is that by the end of the 1990s, ivory markets had crashed, prices had fallen, uh, and it was because this Two things happened. One, this new affluent market that grew up in Asia, particularly China, in the early years of this century. And the other was the decision to allow these one-off sales of ivory, I think, had a lot to do with it in, in, in 1997 and 2008, when the sale was actually held. And now we're in a situation where we're back where we were in the late 1980s, except we are starting with a lot fewer elephants. The market has shifted completely. Um, it's now mostly in China, whereas before it was Japan and the West. And it's become maybe an even more horrifying story because today the people who are out there doing the poaching are in many cases terrorists, people like Al-Shabaab, which gets reportedly 40% of its arms funding from ivory sales, from poached ivory. Uh, the Lord's Resistance Army, Joseph Coney's army that's enslaved children, raped women. Uh, you know, it's like blood diamonds, as I say in the book. It's like blood diamonds, except you don't have to shoot an intelligent and sensitive animal to get the diamond. Hmm. But after that, it's as bad. Ivory is being used to fund organized crime, rebellion, violence, terrorism, destabilization of governments, and of course, one of the things I wanted to tell in this book that I think is one of the few good things that's come out of this is it's finally raised the issue of wildlife crime in general and this issue in particular to the level of international concerns about governance and stability. So it's no longer the province of animal people. 
you don't have people saying, why are you doing this instead of helping people? Because this does involve people. It's now at the United Nations General Assembly. You've got people like Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Ban Ki-moon and Prince William and a number of other people who are in the wide world of major, major power figures that are now saying we've got to do something about this because it's doing far more than just killing a bunch of animals in Africa. This is a terrible international problem. So I wrote the book to give people the background on how we got here. A lot of the stories you're reading today in New York Times, National Geographic, excellent articles by people like Jeffrey Gettleman and Brian Christie, tell you what's happening now. What I wanted to do is to step back to the 70s, the 80s, and say, okay, now let's see how we got into this mess in the first place. Because the question asked, I thought we had an ivory ban. I thought rhino horn was illegal. Why are we in this mess? To sort of answer that question, to bring us forward to the present, and then in that context, to say to people, okay, now here's what I think we can do. Here's what I think we have to do. I'm hoping the book will not just have been a satisfying experience for me or something that people working in the field can use, I'm hoping it will be a weapon in the, in the struggle we're in, because I think people have to understand what is going on and why it's going on. If we're going to make intelligent moves to do something about it, and we have to. I agree. And one of the things that I did really like about your book was it is that you described the CITES process and history, as you mentioned, in a way that I think anybody can understand. Um, I think that a lot of people don't understand how CITES works. Um, I see comments all the time, um, tell CITES to do something. And it's like, well, um, that's not exactly, you know, how it works. Your book just does such a great job of laying that all out, how it happened, how it came about, and um, just really great uh, background information in there. Um, elephants. Uh, in chapter five, you point out that the Asian elephant was placed on CITES, and you say there has never been any serious suggestion that that should change. But as you were just saying, the elephant listing, um, the elephant situation, the African elephant situation has always been a polarizing topic. Um, you said that you were involved with the um, conditions whereby an elephant, um, a country could move the elephant listing from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1. Um, yeah, can, can you elaborate on why there has to be a set of um, conditions for that? Why people just wouldn't be able to say, well, our elephants are great. We're just going to move them to Appendix 2 now and trade. Um, can you elaborate on that? The point about Asian elephants is there are only about a tenth the number of Asian elephants in the wild as there are African elephants. Mm -hmm. uh, be a little more than that now because the African elephant numbers have fallen so much. But so people might say, why are we more concerned about the African elephant than the Asian elephant? The point is there's never really been the kind of massive illegal trade in Asian elephant ivory that there has an African elephant ivory. And there are some reasons for that. Um, I mean, there's been some, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. but, First of all, the elephants themselves, African elephants, both the males and females have tusks. In Asian elephants, only the females have, the males, excuse me, only the males have tusks in most populations. Occasionally a female will have tusks. So there's a lot less ivory to be had per population in Asia. Uh, the other thing is that 
in Asia, there's been first a long history of semi, what they call domestication that really isn't of Asian elephants, of catching wild elephants and training them. So that where you've had a big problem with Asian elephants in countries like Thailand is not so much their ivory, but illegal trade in the live animals themselves. Uh, also, you don't have the kind of, well, failed state governance, to call it that, that has allowed uh, these militia to flourish in places like the Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, places like that. It's just not in the state of chaos. In Africa, you had a different history. When all the African states became independent back in the 1960s, there were civil wars that broke out all over the place. Partly, I think that was maybe reading more into it than is there, but partly that was because the, the countries really didn't represent real ethnic or national groupings within Africa. The country's boundaries in Africa reflected what the colonial powers could grab in the so-called scramble for Africa back in the 1900s, in the Victorian times. So you had African countries that contained people who hated each other <laughs> and whose nearest relations were actually over the border in some other country. But back uh, when these countries first became independent, instead of redrawing their boundaries, they, they decided to keep the boundaries they had. In fact, Nigeria fought a desperate civil war with a breakaway portion of the country that tried to form an independent country called Biafra, hmm. uh, basically to preserve those old boundaries. So there was an unstable situation in Africa, and that got taken advantage of by arms dealers. There was an enormous, enormous influx of arms into Africa in the 60s and the 70s. So that by the time these various civil wars calmed down and, 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 and many of them ended, you had this immense trove of weapons, AK-47s, uh, things of that nature in Africa and nothing to shoot with them as it were. Um, and so they were available to go into the hands of, of poachers. This was a major contributing factor to the wave of elephant poaching, the first wave back in the 70s and 80s that led up to the international ban was this, this enormous influx of weapons. Now in Asia, that just did not happen. Mm. It, it's just not really a comparable, not that they haven't had internal troubles, but it's never been that sort of a mess in, in, in Asia that it is in Africa. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. Um, now to come to CITES itself, first of all, uh, it's true. People don't understand CITES. I, I give a talk to, uh, people at the beginning of every CITES conference to colleagues and NGOs, which I call CITES, a guide for the perplexed. And I sort of explain the title by saying, I call it that because everybody's perplexed about CITES. It, it is complicated. Uh, I'm, they're, they're, it's not just the treaty. There's, there's pages and pages of, of resolutions and decisions and plus the listings themselves. What people don't understand about CITES is that there is no such thing as a central governing body that makes CITES decisions. It's not like, tell your congressman to vote for this. I mean, to a certain extent, you have votes, but the votes are at these meetings, which are held every three years, they're one country, one vote of the number of countries that are in CITES, what it's 179 now, I believe, and getting a two-thirds majority, which is what you need to pass any substantive measure, is very difficult. So, yes, you you can get something onto the table at CITES, but it's a long, slow, and difficult process. It has to be put forward by a country 
I can't do it, you can't do it, but the United States or Canada or European Union countries could do it. There is no body in the center of studies that says, here's what species you should list, or here's what protection you could give them. Uh, there was a plan for that. When CITES was originally drafted, the very first draft of it had a central scientific committee that was supposed to pick the species that would be protected under CITES. That was eliminated in the early drafts because it was thought to be an attack on state sovereignty. Mm. So, uh, so right now, the only way to get a species even considered is a country has to propose it. It could be the most endangered species on earth. If a country does not propose it for listing on CITES, nobody else can. And the same for removing it, changing its status, upgrading it from one country to another, one appendix, I should say, to another one level of protection, which is what the appendices are. So, you know, it's it's not just a matter of some sort of body sitting in, in Geneva that can say, today we're going to do this. They can't. They can do some things, but they're more bureaucratic and limited. So they can't say, why hasn't society been this? Well, if nobody's asked it to, uh, then, they, then they have to wait till somebody does, and I mean a country. The other thing is, is that a lot of people don't understand that there is an international ban in place on ivory and rhinoceros horn. It's already there. I mean, asking the United States to ban ivory is a little silly. It's like asking them to outlaw murder. It's already done. <laughs> yeah, I, I see a lot of those um, online petitions, and, and the, some of them will actually say, tell the U.S. to ban trade in rhinoceros porn. I'm like, what? It already does. <laughs> uh, now, yes, it's true that the ban was lifted for certain special sales out of Southern Africa, but those sales are done and they're over. So right yeah. now, there is no such thing as a legal trade in either ivory or rhinoceros horn across any international border anywhere in the world. You can have domestic trade within a country, but you cannot trade it internationally. That's already illegal. So right. all the trade that is happening now is already illegal trade. So that what we want to do is do something about bringing that illegal trade under control and hopefully not allowing further legal trade because despite what some think about this, I firmly believe that a legal trade would be a very bad move. It would be a stimulus that would lead to more poaching and would also make it much harder to control ivory sales and reduce demand, which I think is absolutely key in the end markets. So um, if you're going to ask the United States or Canada or some country to do something, the most important thing they can do right now is not ban something they've already banned. Right. <laughs> it's put, put money and assistance into two things. Law enforcement, including anti-poaching, and demand reduction, helping to reduce the demand in the countries where they're really buying the stuff in huge numbers, including China. Right. So those are the two areas that need the most work. The law is there, although in many, many countries the laws could be improved because the penalties are very, very low mm -hmm. and have to mm -hmm. be raised, but not in the major Western countries. We're talking about in Africa, we're talking about some other countries in the developing world where the message that this is a serious crime and needs to be addressed with serious penalties is only starting to get through. It is in some places, in others not so much. Right. We saw uh, at CITES, at one of the side events, they had some of the magistrates um, from, I believe, one of one of them, at least, 
was from Malaysia and he was talking about uh, sensitizing um, the courts to uh, what they were calling green crimes, I think. And so I thought that was a good step. I think more of that needs to happen. Well, absolutely. As you, you know, I spend a lot of my time in Malaysia because my wife yes. is Malaysia. <laughs> so, but yes, that is a problem in many places. It's First of all, you have to have penalties enforced that are actually serious enough, rigorous enough to deter people. When someone is making thousands or even millions of dollars, slapping them with a fine for a couple of hundred bucks, they'll laugh at you. Yeah, it's like paying a business tax. It's, it's well, exactly. Absurd. I mean, to talk about Malaysia, my wife once gave me an example of when she was working with the government of Sarawak many years ago, in which uh, there was a case involving somebody who had smuggled orchids, who was a, from overseas, and the fine, he was convicted, but the fine was so low, he actually laughed on his way out of the courtroom. Ugh. I mean, and, that, and, and that's not saying anything against Malaysia. That's a problem in many, many countries, yeah. even Kenya which has been a leading country in fighting for the ivory ban, a judge recently gave some Chinese nationals who had thousands of dollars worth of smuggled ivory a fine amounting to about 250 bucks, And he said that I can't do any more because that's the maximum penalty that I'm allowed to give. Kenya is now changing its law. Malaysia recently updated its laws and now has a much, much better wildlife law in place than it had previously. So that situation has improved. But even having stiff penalties in in place in the law books doesn't necessarily mean the judges are going to apply them. So the other thing you do have to do is convince judges that this is serious crime. Absolutely. And because otherwise you can say a penalty of up to say five years in jail, but that still means you can put someone in jail for a week. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. not required. And, and, and let me say, one, by the way, there's a lot of people who ask, and maybe they're asking as they're listening to this, well, you're talking about bans, but the bans, if the bans work so well, if you say, if you're in favor of the bans, well, why is this illegal trade still happening? I mean, one of the simple answers is, look, murder is against the law. That doesn't mean murders don't happen. Rape is <laughs> law. It doesn't mean rape doesn't happen. It doesn't right. mean those laws are useless. It means they're not being enforced in the fullest possible way and that it is very difficult to totally eliminate a crime. There are probably very few criminal laws in any statute book, any in the world, if any, that have totally succeeded in stopping all the illegal activity that they seek to ban. Absolutely. And also, the fact that something is illegal, that's going to stop some people. That's going to stop a lot of people. Exactly. And this is this is something that a lot of the people who've been arguing in favor of legal trade in, in ivory and rhino horn, I think, have missed, which is that the reason the ban worked, the last ban, the 89 ban on, on ivory, I mean, rhino horn is, is kind of a funny situation because the ban's been in place for a long time and there have been country by country moves like in Yemen, all the work that uh, uh, has been done there by Esmond Martin and other people. But... People bought into it because people didn't want to buy hot ivory. They weren't lining up back alleys to buy ivory from a dealer. They were going into legitimate stores, mm -hmm. buying something that they thought was legal. And what that meant is that as long as the legal trade existed, if smugglers could succeed in laundering their stock into the legal market, disguising it as legal, they could sell it. 
And the result of that, this was a situation, this is why this store Burks wrote off all the ivory that I was telling you about, because it was reported at the 1987 CITES meeting that something like, I believe, 78% of the ivory that was in legal trade with CITES permits originated from poached animals. So in other words, even most of the legal stuff was illegal, the, the ostensibly legal stuff. And when people knew that, they stopped buying. Now, that message got across in North America very, very well. The North American European markets were already drying up when the ban hit, I think. Um, there were a lot of unilateral bans in different countries. Canada, United States, other countries passed unilateral bans on the trade beforehand. Now, the problem today is we're dealing with a very, very different market. We're dealing with China primarily for ivory. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm not saying it isn't going anywhere else, and I'm not trying to whack the Chinese, but the point is it is nonetheless the case that China is, first of all, the only country today that is selling significant amounts of legal ivory domestically because of the 2008 one-off sale when they got many tons of the stuff, and is also the number one destination for illegal ivory. And although China has claimed that they are able to totally separate the legal ivory from the illegal stock, Esmond Martin showed by surveys of stores in Guangzhou and other cities that less than half of the ivory on sale in registered stores that were supposedly only selling government-issued legal ivory, less than half of that had the documentation that was required to prove that it was legal. In other words, that could well have been poached ivory right in those stores. And there have been statements made by by some people, whether they're true or not, I I think it's hard to verify, that perhaps 90% of the ivory sold either legally or illegally in China today, is illegal. Now, Chinese consumers operate rather differently, I think, than Western consumers do. And I think that the big job we have is convincing them that, as we did with people in the West and in Europe, that they have to stop buying this stuff because they're participating in an illegal activity that is not just hurting animals and it's not just illegal, but is resulting in a tremendous amount of human suffering. And I think the more that message gets across, the better chance we have of getting somewhere. There are those who would say, oh, you can't do anything about China. You know, there's such a huge problem. But we're already starting to see changes around issues like shark fin. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you're finding that, that it's not just people like me going over there and saying, you Chinese shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, which I would not do. Uh, for no other reason than my wife, who is Chinese, would shoot me. But, <laughs> but um, it, it's also because, you know, that message is now coming from people who are within China, who are, are Chinese. Um, Yao Ming, the basketball player, who's a huge celebrity in China, has become a spokesman telling people in China not to buy ivory and bridal. And it, the message has to come across at a culturally appropriate level, but it has to come across at a very large level. And both China and Vietnam, which is where it seems most of the rhino horn is being sold today. If the message doesn't come from Vietnamese people and is not bought into by the Vietnamese buying public, it won't get across. And if you don't get that message across, then be, then enforcing any kind of ban becomes extraordinarily difficult. I say, this isn't cocaine. This isn't a substance that people are buying, both ivory or rhino, or perhaps knowing that it's illegal or knowing that it's clicked in such a bad way. Maybe less. Maybe it is more with rhino horn than with ivory. 
if people can realize that in doing this they are committing a crime, that may help. Another thing that might help is also telling people where it comes from. I mean, with ivory particularly, there have been surveys done in China to show that many buyers still think that the ivory, in effect, falls out of the elephant's mouth and it regrows. <laughs> and that, that you don't have to kill the elephants to get it. And just getting the point across that, you know, no, that's not what is happening. Here's what is happening. You're getting this from armed armies who are going through and terrorizing the local population, shooting anyone that gets in their way and by the by machine gunning any elephant they come across. That's where your ivory comes from. That's the message that has to get across. How, you know, we're, we're dealing with all this aftermath of the uh, one-off sale in 2008. How did that get approved in the first place? I mean, I, it's my understanding that that was a very uh, contentious uh, proposal. How did that, how did that go through? How was this not, it was foreseen by some how did this happen? Well, all right, let me take people back a bit. I, I talk about this in a whole chapter in the book as to how we ended up in this particular situation. Remember that the ivory ban was passed in 1989. Right. At every CITES meeting after that in 1992 and 1994, the Southern African countries who had never accepted the ban mm -hmm. tried to get it overturned, at least for their countries. Now, in 1997, the meeting was held in Zimbabwe, which was the leader of the fight to reopen the trade. And Robert Mugabe called in all kinds of political favors, uh, we are told, to uh, get African countries to support him, to get other countries to support um, allowing the Southern African countries, Zimbabwe particularly, the ability to sell some ivory. That resulted in the permission for the first one-off sale, which would meant that these countries... It had huge stockpiles of ivory, a lot confiscated from poachers, a lot uh, the result of natural uh, mortality, uh, some of it the result of culling operations. But they had warehouses full of ivory. And their argument was, look, we know you don't want us to go out and shoot more elephants, but, I mean, we've got a, a fortune sitting here in our warehouses, uh, slowly disintegrating, and we, we're not a rich country. We, we could use that money. We could use it to pay for conservation. Uh, you know, if, if it just sits there and is worthless, what good is it doing anyone? And that argument told in, in a number of circles. Um, there was a major, major publicity campaign to support that view and to, and to claim that the original ban had failed, even though it hadn't, frankly. Um, and the argument that, that we were making, those of us who felt differently, that this would stimulate poachers by, in effect, telling people that, okay, we're back in business again, um, they, they, that argument wasn't listened to as much. And they, they said, the people supporting this, that what we were going to, in effect, was to pack all the ivory into a sealed container, which would be marked and inspected by the CITES secretary, that would go off to only one country in 97, Japan, which was where the major market then was. And it would be opened and checked and surveyed, and there would be very great care taken to see that none of that ivory ever got, uh, that no one, in effect, was smuggling illegal ivory into this container, which we never thought they would do anyway. How could they? The, the big problem was what was happening around it. The big, and the big problem was that ivory was still coming in illegally. I remember at the 1992 meeting in Japan, 
uh, there was a seizure of ivory in Kyoto. Uh, when the meeting was in Kyoto, it was seized in Japan while the meeting was going on. And some of the Southern African spokesmen actually accused organizations like the ones I've worked with that were trying to promote keeping the ban where it is of having staged that in order to affect the vote. We were sort of looking at each other like, like how are we supposed to do that? <laughs> I haven't, having been to, to a cop, that does not surprise me that someone no. would say something like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, politics. Is just, there's no question that CITES is political. Let's let's not, as I say, uh, we're recording this in the middle of the current uh, house shutdown in the United States, yeah. and uh, there are strong similarities as to the way things can operate. But anyway, so in 1997, this one sale went to Japan. And to be perfectly fair, it's still very ambiguous whether that did or did not um, stimulate poaching to any degree. I think it did some, but perhaps not as much as maybe we feared, perhaps more so than some would like to admit. But Japan is a rather special case because it's an island. Mm -hmm. And smuggling ivory in and out of Japan requires either a boat or an airplane. Now, in 2002, there was an approval for further one-off sales because they say, oh, hey, this one worked. The sky did not fall. Let's do some more. And over the next few years, while there were various conditions that had to be met that were put in place, um, that countries had to meet both importing and exporting countries to um, allow the sale to take place, China started to express an interest, particularly after about uh, the middle of the decade. Mm -hmm. And um, now China was a whole different ballgame. First of all, of course, it's so much bigger. Well, and you've got all those borders. Precisely. Oh. That that controlling <laughs> illegal trade in and out of China is an entirely different question than controlling illegal trade in and out of Japan. And uh, those of us who were still very seriously concerned that this would be a terrible idea thought, well, we didn't think the sale to Japan would be a good idea, but we think selling to China would be an absolute disaster. But uh, the CITES Secretariat went over to China and had a look at their legal mechanisms, came back and said they seemed reasonably okay. China said they were going to do everything to make sure that no further problems would happen. And, and in fact, the, the illegal issue was kind of shoved off. It was sort of saying, well, our question is, if they sell ivory from Southern Africa to China, can we make sure that ivory is only sold legally? And they said, as long as they could guarantee that, that in effect, the ivory that went into the box in Southern Africa came out of the box in China, then that was the end of the problem. And the illegal trade going on all around it was a, another issue. We're not related to it. And I was this by people in the CITES Secretariat. So uh, anyway, the whole thing came up at, uh, at, at, in 2008 when the sale was allowed. And there was also a trade-off. There was a deal struck to get the other African nations who were opposed to the ivory trade on side. The idea was that in return for allowing this sale, which by now was like, like 100,000 tons of ivory, practically the entire ivory stockpiles of Southern Africa of South Africa, Zimbabwe, and maybe a few other countries. Um, there would be an agreement that there would be no further ivory trade proposals for an eight-year period. Unfortunately, I mean, I think it was a very bad idea that everyone agreed to that because I don't think they read the fine print, as I say in the book, that mm -hmm. it didn't mean that new countries like Tanzania couldn't come along and ask to have their populations downlisted. And, of course, because... There is no mechanism in CITES to enforce a moratorium of that type. It was a gentleman's agreement. If a country wanted to defy it, they could defy it and see what happened. And in fact, 
every CITES meeting since there have been proposals to downwest elephant populations, moratorium or no moratorium. But everybody said, oh, okay, that sounds fair to us. It's a nice all-Africa compromise. All the African countries signed off on it. The rest of the world said, isn't it wonderful that Africa's agreeing with each other, all the countries, so let's let them do it. And off this vast amount of ivory went to China in 2008. And that, I think, was the absolute worst thing that could have happened. Um, by then, China's affluence had grown enormously. The, you know, the China was, is, is no longer the sort of Maoist land it used to be. It was an extremely commercial country where, you know, money really talks better than maybe anywhere else on the planet, I think. And um, so you have a huge market, people who want luxury goods, people from having luxury goods is a symbol of face and status and power. And ivory, which has always been associated in China with wisdom and power and strength, is a particularly valuable status symbol there. So, also, the Chinese government didn't do what I think everyone expected it to do. Part of the argument that's always been made in favor of legal sales of ivory, and, and now we're hearing rhinoceros horn, is, well, we just get a whole bunch of this stuff out there legally. We can undercut the market. It's the same argument that's made for legalizing marijuana for argument's sake. And, I mean, marijuana's not ivory because there's a lot more of it, really. It, you know, I mean, I... I I'm all in favor of legalization of things like that, but ivory is a whole different ballgame because there is so little of it, and same with rhino horn, so its price remains enormously inflated. But the statement was that this legal ivory would undercut the poachers. But that involved the idea that China was somehow going to take all this ivory and dump it at rock-bottom prices onto the market, in effect drive the poachers out of business. What the Chinese government did instead was to dole the ivory out in small lumps, as it were, small uh, tranches over the next several years to the professional ivory carvers in China at huge prices. They were actually charging more than the poachers were getting. So um, the result of that was that, yes, the Chinese government maximized what they were making in revenue out of the ivory, but its effect on poaching well, let's say it certainly didn't have the effect that the people who supported it said it was going to have. Prices remained high, poaching gotten far worse. And in fact, I think that the 2008 sale contributed to it because, again, it announced to the world and to China and to Chinese consumers that legal sales of ivory in China were okay, that it was all right to buy ivory. And boy, have they been buying it. But I can remember back when there was an international legal trade, this was going back in the 80s, mm -hmm. that uh, Ian Douglas Hamilton uh, announced uh, at a CITES conference that ivory with CITES permits, I mean, remember right now there is no such thing as ivory with CITES permits because there's no further trade taking place, but ivory with CITES permits was worth four times ivory without permits. In other words, the permits were worth more than the ivory. Okay. And so as a result, you had forged permits, stolen permits, recycled and reused permits. They were a major part of what was going on. That was one of the arguments for the ban. And one of the advantages of having a ban today in whatever form it, 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 it survives in is you can't do that anymore because there are no CITES permits in circulation for ivory because you can't, there is no ivory that is now legal to trade across international borders. Now, what you're talking about is domestic 
Yes, stuff. paperwork and, in the domestic trade. Yes. And, I mean, now in China, there are supposed to be registration documents with every piece of ivory that is sold out of the legal stockpile that China has. Now, as I mentioned to you, surveys show that in, in the specially registered shops that are supposed to be selling this stuff, less than half the ivory has that documentation. Now, does that mean that, in effect, you don't really need to fake or forge the documentation because people are quite happy to buy ivory without it at, at a similar price? Or uh, is some of the ivory that has those papers, is that paperwork questionable? I've never seen anybody really analyze that. Uh, I'm not saying it, it isn't so, but I really have no information on whether that internal documentation in China is airtight or whether there is any forgery or other misuse of documentation in that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me because it happened internationally back the first time. Mm. But I have proof that it is. Hmm. Moving to... Rhinos, now just for a moment. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> you can move to rhinos. <laughs> One of the things that I thought was really interesting um, was in, in um, Chapter Eight. You said that there's there was a 1987 CITES resolution that urged member countries to destroy all government and parastatal stocks of rhinoceros horn in com in return for compensatory funds from external aid sources. What happened to that? Well, effectively nothing. I mean, that's the simple answer. The aid sources didn't appear and the countries mm. didn't do it. And uh, the, uh, the resolution is repealed. It's, it's been overridden since. And uh, there were reports, uh, I, I cite them in the book, that uh, nothing was in effect happening. Now, the same thing, unfortunately, happened with ivory. I mean, one of the big failures of the international community back when the original ban went through was that there was a, a project to gather together projects, budgeted projects from all over Africa. There were stacks and stacks of, of, of proposals in, in book form that were um, edited by a, a fellow named Steve Cobb. Um, that were supposed to go out to international donor countries to say, okay, you've all now agreed to this ivory ban, you've agreed it's a serious problem, we need you to step up to the plate and put out some money to help countries do with this. Here are specific projects from all these countries. And in effect, the countries kept their hands very firmly in their pockets. <laughs> uh, very little money, very little came out of that. And I mean, that fueled a lot of the, the resentment and anger against the ban in Southern Africa, and quite legitimately, I, I, I absolutely agree with them on that point. That was a major failure of uh, the developing nation, or developed nations, I should say, and the major uh, funding organizations to put that money in. Now, that's why today, if I can veer back to elephants for a moment longer, is we have the African Elephant Fund that's been set up by CITES, which is there to institute and implement an African Elephant Action Plan that's been agreed to by all the African countries, and we are seeing some money coming into that. Um, the European Union's put a lot of money into it, even China's put money into it, although I think they can put a lot more. Um, and, uh, you know, there is no question that when you are asking countries in the developing world to do something to protect their wildlife, uh, you have to understand that they, even with the best will in the world and leaving aside corruption and political will and everything else, they can't afford it. 
uh, wildlife rangers in many countries don't have anything like the kind of sophisticated weaponry material that the poachers have. They're, they're outgunned and outclassed in almost every department because the countries can't afford to fund these rangers. That's why so many rangers die. I mean, you, you remember that uh, Sean Wilmore, who was at the CITES meeting, who heads the International Rangers Foundation out of Australia, said that uh, over a thousand wildlife rangers have lost their lives in the past decade, uh, gunned down by poachers. We've had cases with Ivory where um, presumed militia units went in and slaughtered uh, uh, game rangers who were uh, Muslims. They were at their daily prayers, and they went into the prayer area and, and machine gunned them all. Uh, there, we are asking people who were trained to basically run a park to fight a war. And they're not trained to do it, they're not equipped to do it. And if the world doesn't step up to the plate and give them the wherewithal, they're not going to be able to do it. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that I'm thrilled at the uh, announcement by the Clinton Foundation that they're putting $80 million towards uh, the ivory trade issues. And I hope the same thing will happen with rhino. I mean, rhino is a bit different, again, because of the fact that most of the rhinos in the world today, unlike elephants, are in one country. They're in South Africa. And South Africa has its own types of issues and types of people involved. And South Africa is, is not in perhaps the same developing country camp as many of the other countries that have ivory or have some of the rarer species of, elephant, of, of rhino, I should say. Yeah, speaking of... South Africa, one of the things, you know, because we're hearing about rhinos being killed in South Africa uh, every day, I still am hearing people say trophy hunting saves South Africa's rhinos and it's going to save them now. But is trophy hunting really still saving South Africa's rhinos? Can you elaborate on that? I can try. That's not an easy question to answer. I mean, first of all, I'm going to put aside for the purpose of answering this question, any of my own personal feelings about trophy hunting. I, mm -hmm. I, I truly don't like it. I don't right. understand what pleasure people get out of it. I have I've talked to people from Safari Club and others say, please explain to me what why you get a thrill out of this. I I, I don't condemn them as sadists or villains, but I don't understand it either. Um, but anyway, the question of what trophy hunting's role has been in the rhinos of South Africa and the conservation of the white rhino in particular mm -hmm. isn't easy to answer because you have to look at the history. Yes, South Africa has a huge population of white rhinos compared to any other country in the world. But when I, you know, 20,000 animals say, when I first went to Africa in 1966, there were more black rhinos by a considerable margin than white rhinos. That's completely reversed itself. The black rhinos were slaughtered almost almost down to the last few hundred animals, a few thousand anyway. And white rhinos have built up and built up and built up. And the South Africans will point to their trophy. The trophy hunting was an incentive for private landowners to stock rhinos on their game farms. And that that allowed rhinos not just to be bred up, but to be moved out, new populations established, new genetic sources so you couldn't wipe them all out in one go. Uh, and it is true that uh, rhinos have been proven much easier to wipe out in large open national parks like Tsavo in East Africa, where there were only a few people patrolling a vast area and the poachers could sweep through and exterminate them. And that's part of the problem we're having in the Kruger National Park, which is where most of the rhinos are being killed today. 
So the people who would support the view you stated would say, well, because of trophy hunting, and remember, they're only hunting, uh, they say, aged individuals who are beyond breeding age, even if that's not true. The point is they'd say there are a lot more rhinos in private hands, a lot more places where there are rhinos in South Africa today than before. However, I'd like to offer a little perspective on that. When you look at the history of the white rhino in South Africa over the past century, and I think you have to go back that far, you find that white rhino numbers reached their absolute lowest in the early years of this century, the last century. They were down to maybe less than 100 animals, very, very small population, maybe 30 have even heard it said. And there were heroic efforts made by South African conservationists to build those numbers up. And it was done under a regime of strict protection. It wasn't until almost 60 or 70, maybe, maybe 60 years or so, had elapsed before trophy hunting was allowed. And by that time, white rhino numbers had built up to six, 700 animals or more. And at that point, they began offering these animals for sale. And even then, they were being offered, they weren't being offered as trophies. They were being offered for sale to private individuals to help spread the population with the understanding that one day in the future, trophy hunting might come in. Now, yes, the white rhino population has grown exponentially until the poachers really started to hit them in the last few years, or had grown exponentially since then. And part of the reason is, yes, that there have been a lot more of these on private lands, but only part. I mean... There's, most of the rhinos in South Africa are not in private hands. They're in public lands, particularly the Kruger. But when you say what saved the rhino, was it that first rise from almost no animals to a healthy enough population that you could begin translocating up into the Kruger and into private hands when they had several, when they had almost a thousand animals? Is that the point at which the rhino was saved? Or did it only happen afterwards when the private sector came in in a big way and hunting came up? Well, it depends what you mean. So, I mean, I would say trophy hunting probably was a contributing factor to the number of white rhinos that are out in South Africa today. It's certainly a contributing factor to where they're found. Whether the white rhino would have been saved without it is one of those questions that's very difficult to answer. But again, I would say if the private sector rhinos all disappeared tomorrow, that would still leave well more than half of a white rhino population on public lands in the Kruger elsewhere. That, to me, it's the protection of those public rhinos, particularly in the Kruger, that is crucial to saving the rhino, not trophy hunting. And again, I'm saying that not because I'm making a moral judgment about trophy hunting. I think it's just that the facts are that most of the rhinos currently in South Africa today do not owe their existence to trophy hunting. They owe it to very hard work by many, many dedicated South African conservationists in national parks, in other areas, and that going back many, many, many decades into periods when no trophy hunting was allowed or even contemplated. Hmm. Thanks for that clarification. Um, you mentioned the private rhino owners, which leads us to the argument in favor of legalizing rhino horn trade. I have been hearing people say, well, we've already tried everything and nothing works. Is that accurate? <laughs> it, is, it is not accurate. And in fact, that's probably the biggest single myth about rhinoceros conservation is that nothing's worked and that what you've seen 
ever since CITES came along and maybe well before that was a steady decline everywhere but in South Africa where the private owners were building up the rhino stocks, uh, white rhino stocks. It's not true. Um, it doesn't mean we're not in a horrible mess. And it doesn't mean that the ban hasn't had very serious enforcement problems. But if you go back and look at the history, particularly through the 1990s, when there was a period where there was very strong enforcement, not just in, in Africa, but in India, Nepal, places like that where the, the greater one-horned rhino was, um, poaching dropped off. You were finding by the end of the 1990s that there were many people who thought that they, they licked the problem, that poaching was under control through a combination of strong enforcement on the ground and uh, de demand reduction campaigns. At that point, remember that one of the major markets for horn was maybe half the market at that point was Yemen. And Yemen did not even uh, become a signatory of CITES until 1997. For your listeners who don't know, of course, the Yemenis wore these rhino horn daggers as a, a, a symbol of, uh, in effect, adulthood, masculinity, whatever, um, as a status symbol. Uh, and uh, there were campaigns led by people like Esmond Martin, again, who went there, to uh, get edicts passed, religious fatwas, because, uh, of course, it's a Muslim country, uh, telling people not to buy these uh, rhino horn dagger, daggers or the rhino horn handles on the daggers to get them made of other substances. And the Yemeni market did begin to shrink. Uh, partly also that was due to the fact that there was a change in, in fashion in Yemen. And you can't wear one of these daggers very well if you're dressed in Western style. It just doesn't look very good in the front of your pants. Yeah. <laughs> you, you need to have the traditional Yemeni uh, robes. But but the thing is that and there, Yemen, the Yemen problem has kind of died away. Yeah. You don't hear about Yemen anymore. And I mean, that was the result, at least partly, mm -hmm. of a very uh, rigorous demand reduction campaign with the cooperation of the Yemeni government, with the cooperation of religious authorities in Yemen, with hard work by conservationists who went into Yemen and helped to do that. And as I say, things were kind of under control. I remember we had a standing committee, CITES standing committee meeting back in Lisbon, and I think it was around 2002 or three, if I recall, at which there was sort of general agreement that rhinos were in much better shape than they'd been in a long time and that the crisis was kind of over. I mean, we were unfortunately wrong because there was this huge influx of a market that we didn't know about, this new market from Vietnam uh, and perhaps China. We don't know how much the market is in China, but certainly Vietnam that overtook us as, as uh, Vietnam became in itself an extremely affluent country and this craze for rhino horn developed there, people thinking it would cure cancer, people looking at it as a status symbol. But... And yes, that undid the gains we'd made. There's no question that it did. But to say that those gains never worked at all ever is wrong. And I think we have to go back and look at what did work, even if it didn't work forever. Nothing works forever. That worked for a good many years. And say, that worked. How can we apply it to the modern situation? Because it has to be considered. It's, a, it's tougher today. I have no question about it. But... Demand reduction coupled with strong enforcement has worked in the past. And I, I believe that we should make sure that it absolutely cannot work again before we start going to putting rhino horn out in the legal market, especially when we've seen what's happened to ivory, where 
reintroducing legal trade of ivory has been accompanied by, if it didn't directly contribute to, much worse ivory poaching and illegal trade. For instance, um, you'll, you'll hear people talk about both ivory and rhino horn and use as a model the Kimberly mechanism for uh, diamond marketing, which uh, you go to De Beers in South Africa and say, oh, we ought to use that model. And uh, despite the fact that the model has been shown to be a failure in preventing illegal trade in diamonds. It does not work, aside from all the other problems with it, like you have it run by a cartel. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, but, but I mean, leaving that aside, yeah. it, it doesn't work for diamonds. Why on earth should it work for rhinoceros horn or, or ivory? Um, so, no, I mean, the, that argument that nothing's ever worked, and so we have to try legal trade because we have nothing else left on the shelf is a false argument. It's simply false to history. The other big problem with that argument is that, in effect, it could derail very necessary conservation action that is, that is needed right now. The biggest problem, I think, that even the proponents of legal ivory trade, legal rhino horn trade, excuse me, face, is they have to get it through CITES. There's no way they can have legal trade, international trade, unless CITES approves it, unless they're prepared to become international criminals, which I don't think is what they're trying to do. And CITES won't really be in a position to discuss this seriously until 2016. They could admittedly do it by a postal procedure, but that's never happened before, and I think it's vanishingly unlikely it'll happen now. Even if in 2016 the countries all meet, as they're going to do in, in South Africa, in Cape Town, uh, to discuss this, if they accept the proposal South Africa wants to put forward for a legal rhino horn trade, undoubtedly there'll be conditions attached. That's the way it happened with ivory. They're not just going to say, hey, go for it. One of them will be to approve uh, purchasing countries. So countries will have to come forward and say, yes, we're prepared to change our national laws, because nobody allows this now, to allow legal trade and rhino horn to come into our countries. And undoubtedly, there will be a move that they will have to demonstrate to the CITES community that they're capable of policing this. This may take another year or two at least. It took much longer than that before the 2008 self-rivery. That means you're talking about an absolute minimum of five years before assuming everything goes right for the proponents of legal trade and they get everything they want. It's going to be five years before they can start selling any rhino horn at all. Now that means if you say nothing else works, we have to have legal trade, you're in effect saying, well, there's nothing we can do for five years. Well, in the crew, in South Africa today, they've already killed this year so far over 700 rhinos. Mm -hmm. It's growing year by year. Are, if we wait five more years before we even are willing to try something we think works, you're talking probably about three, four thousand more rhinos gone. Uh, in fact, it's, uh, I mean, Richard Emsley, who's the head of the uh, rhino specialist group, ICN rhino specialist group, African rhinos, has said that by around that time, by 2017, 2018, you're going to reach a point at which the number of rhinos being killed exceeds the number that are being born and bred in uh, in South Africa, which hasn't happened yet, because the numbers are still going up, and the numbers will start to come down. That's that's the tipping point. And do we really want to wait till then before we do anything? I hope South Africans won't want to, much less the rest of the world. How harmful is it to demand reduction efforts, all this discussion of legalizing rhino horn? Because sometimes the media reports it 
with headlines such as conservation experts recommend legalizing rhino horn when what you really have is a statement from an economist um, that isn't really a conservation expert at, at all. Um, no uh, statement from any of the um, NGOs or anything like that. How how harmful is this? Uh, is all this uh, a, a talk? Is this stimulating demand? Is this is this hurting demand reduction efforts? I certainly don't think it's helping. To be honest, that's a very difficult question again to answer. I mean, everyone has their ideas. How much of it is based on research and and study? I I think we don't know. I mean, we really don't know what it will do. Uh, I mean, one of the big problems is it's still very difficult to find out where the markets really are. Uh, Vietnam, which has been named as the number one market for rhino horn, has repeatedly claimed that a lot of the ivory rhino horn, excuse me, coming into Vietnam is is being sent up to China. China is sort of denying that there's any problem with rhino horn in their country, though I have heard people say, and I mean, I can't really say more than that, that's why yeah. I didn't talk about yeah. it much in my book, that there are buyers in, in, in China who are stockpiling rhino horn against the day that it becomes ex they become extinct, the various rhino species, and then the prices can really start to climb. Um, they're buying it as an investment. But nobody admits to this, nobody names any names, nobody provides any fact and figures. I mean, it, it's all happening under the table. So discovering what's happening is very difficult. I think it is very, very difficult to have a demand reduction campaign when people are turning around and saying, yes, but you can buy it over here. Mm -hmm. It's okay mm -hmm. to buy this stuff. It's not okay to buy that stuff. And especially when, in, say, with ivory in China, to come back to that again because it's a similar argument, if it's the government that is tasked with both heading up a demand reduction campaign in, in its country and selling the product out of a legal stock, because which Vietnam might do, there there's a um, conflict of interest within whoever's uh, running this sort of thing. I think it's much simpler to say you shouldn't buy this stuff. Here's why you shouldn't buy this stuff. Um, I don't care where you get it. I don't care where it comes from. Don't buy it. Period is a much simpler method than when you buy it, please make sure that it has the legal certificates and oh, by the way, that those certificates were legally acquired and that you're buying it from a registered source and that naturally you want to make sure that that supply has been legally acquired and all the I's and T's have been dotted and then it's okay to buy it, but don't buy it anywhere else. I think that's a little more difficult for consumers to take on board. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it's especially when you are dealing with the chief problem is that these items, both ivory and rhino horn, are status symbols. And a lot of the people who value them as a status symbol may not care where they come from. They say, as long as I can get some, I don't care what, what happened to put it in my hands. You can't reduce demand for a status symbol without eliminating its status. You have to be able to Take, get people who thought of, of these products as symbols of status to not think of them that way, to think of them perhaps as symbols of maybe even shame. I mean, that's happened with ivory in the West. I mean, there are those who would say it's happened with fur, although I think it's arguable where, why fur markets aren't what they used to be. But I mean, it's certainly true that if, if, if a product gets the reputation 
of being associated with something really shameful and bad or even just yucky for heaven's sake, that its value as a status symbol will diminish. And I think that having a legal trade beside an illegal trade is going to make that message extraordinarily difficult to get across. So what's it doing? Is it making poachers poach more? I don't know. Is it making traders trade more, smugglers smuggle more? I don't think there's any way of saying. But will it get in the way of efforts to really do something meaningful about the problem? I absolutely think it will. And, and there's another thing. The benefits of the legal trade, I mean, there are two reasons why illegal trade is being promoted in South Africa. One is what we just talked about, that it will somehow or other undercut the poachers, undercut the illegal trade, take their profits away, which I don't think it will. The other one is that it will provide revenue for the private rhino owners in South Africa so more people will invest in rhinos and put them on their game farms and on their property. I mean, you're Dealing, you're not dealing here with poor villagers, or you could, as you can argue with ivory or some other things. You're dealing with basically some real rich people mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. Have, uh, who have these private game ranches and, you're, and they want to protect their investment, I, which I can understand. And a lot of them have been dehorning their rhinos, cutting the horns off, which you can do with a rhino, and uh, stockpiling them in order to deter uh, poachers. Supposedly the idea is the poachers won't kill a rhino if it hasn't got a horn which is, again, arguable, but it's being done by a lot of people. Um, but the, the thing is that those people who say that if you allow us to sell our rhino horn, we will make the money we need to put back into rhino conservation in South Africa are ignoring, I think, some facts about the way Eastern markets work, and particularly Chinese markets, if that is indeed where some of the market would go. I mean, I don't think it's any secret that if China can produce its own supply of something, they'd rather do that than buy it from somebody else. And I've heard plenty of examples that have nothing to do with wildlife conservation. China already has a few hundred, I believe, white rhinos. I think I've heard figures ranging from 150 to 300. You you may know better than I. White rhinos already in South Africa and in China. There are at least one, I believe, two places that have been effectively licensed by the Chinese government to start breeding uh, centers for these things with the aim of using them to produce pharmaceutical products. Um, if uh, my, uh, my feeling is, is that if South Africa gets any money out of the legal trade, they will get it only until China is capable of turning out its own supply and then they're going to get cut off. And uh, why would they want to import it from South Africa when they can buy their own stuff and control the whole thing themselves? And I think that a lot of the people who are looking at this as some source of future revenue, either for their pockets or for conservation, don't understand that that's the way those markets work. Hmm. Very interesting, um, but also very disturbing, the whole thing. (laughs) Look, this isn't nice and it isn't easy. That's right. (laughs) Well... Ron, again, your book was fantastic. I would think that it is essential reading for anyone who's interested in the situation faced by elephants and rhinos today or someone who just wants to understand the basics of how CITES works. So can people order the book online? How do they get it? Well, it's available on Amazon right now, uh, either in uh, 
as a, as a genuine, honest to goodness book book or through Kindle edition. Um, it's in bookstores in North America now. Uh, not as many copies per store as I'd like, but it's there and uh, can be ordered. It's, it's, it's available in warehouses. It will be a few months, I think, yet before it appears in uh, Europe. But I would say within the next three or four months, it should be available. I know there are distributors in South Africa and Europe. Uh, I'm presuming other countries as well. Uh, this is one of the things my publishers, Firefly Books, are doing. I hope people buy this book, and not just because I'm vain as its author, although I will admit to some of that, and <laughs> not be, not because I'm earning a great deal of money out of it, because if you've ever been in the author business, you know what nonsense that is, <laughs> but because I think it is important to understand what is going on, and there is so much out there to read. I could today write three or four extra chapters just since this book came out of all the things that have happened even since the book was finished, which was after the, the last meeting uh, in last spring. But those stories, which are all over the web, National Geographic's website, other places, I think will make a lot more sense if you understand that they're the culmination of a longer story that has been going on for a number of decades. And, um, you know, that is a story we should all know about. I mean, I called the book, I, the la one of the last lines in the book I, I, I put in was to say that the reason I called the book Ivory, Horn, and Blood is, is to remind people that it's not just animal blood we're talking about or non-human animal blood, to be more precise, but we're talking about human blood and a lot of it. And uh, so if you care about not just ivory or rhinos, but about what is happening in, in some of the most desperate parts of the world today, then you have to understand this issue. And I wrote this book to try and help people understand this issue. And I hope it will. That would be my, if it becomes, as I've said, a weapon in the war, if it becomes a guide to understanding, because I think understanding is what we all need if we're going to really be able to do something about this issue. As I said, it isn't easy. I agree. And Ivory Horn and Blood, people, buy it. It is an excellent book, and I, I've already started referencing it, so um, I love it. Anyway, um, thank you so much, Ron, and I hope that we can talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on here, Richard. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Ivory Horn and Blood and Cites with Dr. Ron Orenstein. This is Risha with Behind the Schemes.